Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast. And we're on the Compliance Podcast Network. Your hosts are Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and I'm kicking off our spring season. As many of you know, I've been trying to speak with some of our, as I call them, OG Gwicks this year, and Ellen Hunt is truly one of my day one people. In fact, she was my first interview for the podcast. I could spend the whole episode talking about how Ellen is my advocate, mentor, sponsor, a word and term I learned from her, and friend. But instead, I'm going to get let you, the listeners, get the benefit of this discussion and the discussions I get to have with her regularly. For many years, Ellen has been in-house, but she recently joined the wonderful team at Spark Compliance. So, Ellen, I know a lot of our regular listeners have heard your story about how you started in compliance and how you made this change this year. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, um, what's most exciting to you, and a bit about your new role? Yeah. Well, I'm thrilled to be uh, a Sparky member of the Spark Compliance Consulting Team. And I'll tell you, for me, it's a bit of a full circle in that I started out as a young lawyer and worked for a bunch of different clients where I learned a whole bunch of different things. Uh, And I'm kind of back to that because we have a variety of very different clients who have different needs. But uh, I have always enjoyed creating and implementing uh, ethics and compliance programs. And the great thing about being with Spark is you have the opportunity to do that at all kinds of different levels, whether it's a program assessment or a risk assessment or building an anti-bribery program or helping with uh, training and communications, um, board training, or helping our clients become uh, a world's most ethical company. So I'm just loving the variety and the wonderful clients we have. Well, they are very, very lucky to get that wisdom for you. And I can just see from when I talk to you how energized you are. So I'm happy for you, but I also said I'm very happy for Spark as well. They're lucky to have it. So with that, um, you're always talk- we're always talking about different cutting edge issues. And last year, we had a long discussion on the podcast about retaliation, mostly about where we are and how we could do better um, as ethics and compliance professionals. My first question is, do you think we're doing better? I don't. Okay. I don't. Um, I think that, um, you know, the two plus years of isolation, mm-hmm. um, the dramatic change that we've all had to make from, you know, being in the office to working at home to going back to the things we might have experienced in our private lives, whether you yourself had COVID or you lost a loved one, um, have put us all in a state of stress. Um And when I look at the great resignation um, without any scientific study (laughs) behind it, uh, I take away that people are just not willing to do or put up with some of the things that they were used to do. Uh, And and in that, I I do really do believe that part of the great resignation is a rejection of what people, uh, corporations say are their corporate values and that some of these folks are ethics refugees. They have raised concerns uh, and have been treated inappropriately. And they said, I'm done. I don't need to do this anymore. So, no, I don't I don't think we're doing better. Uh, I think we get very involved in campaigns and activities and we lose sight of 
of impact. And I think people feel um, that the promise of zero retaliation and just speak up is false. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I listened earlier this week to the, some of the, the um, NAVAX preview of the benchmarking report. And one of the things that they raised was that reports about retaliation nearly doubled, but the substantiation rate remained steady. Um, so, I mean, I'm wondering how that correlates. Similarly, one other point I just want to mention is that the anonymous rate has gone down. So I think people may also feel more emboldened, but I also wonder if that's because if you put your name to it, maybe you're less, you're more protecting yourself from retaliation. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think that you, you, we are now in a more than a 24-7 news cycle, right? Because you can create your own news on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, Instagram, whatever your uh, social media preference is. And I think that's exactly right. People have decided that if they're going to come forward, they need to ha- be exposed uh, for protection, which, which I think is a really sad criticism uh, of ethics and compliance programs, right? When when people feel that the public and the media are going to protect them better, uh, that's not a good thing, I don't think. Um, so I, I think that's exactly right. They're they're identifying themselves to protect themselves, and I think that um, it's it it is perhaps a a, a ne- very negative result on how effective has our ethics and compliance program's been. Yeah, it's interesting too. One of the things that I haven't really read, again, I can't quantify this, but I feel like people when it's coming to behaviors, discrimination, harassment, feel much are now feeling more emboldened to identify themselves. On the other hand, I'm wondering if they're feeling less comfortable to do that when it's a financial issue, excuse me, accounting, other things, because A, you're not in an office anymore. And B, there's also even with the great resignation, those are the kind of things you're not sure, you you know, one doesn't necessarily want to own in case you're wrong down the line. Yeah, I wish someone would do a study of whistleblowers and what happens to them and how they get reemployed if they get reemployed. I mean, the, the other part of the story that we don't really talk about is what happens to these folks. And we know for some people, the toll has been disastrous. Yep. They've never worked again because they have been blackballed by their industries. Uh, you don't have corporations that are uh, courageous enough to hire somebody who's been a whistleblower. Uh, and I, it would just be very interesting to me to know, uh, do we have people who get back into the workforce and have been embraced by corporations that are known whistleblowers? I mean, I think that's piece of data we just don't have. Um, and I just, I, I'm fascinated also just by how we seem to have um, some real hypocritical messages and double messages going on. Um, we know, right, when you come forward on financial issues, you're probably going to get fired. You're just going to get fired. So what's the incentive? Yeah. True. The other, I mean, and I'm just going to mention this to me, which has always been a challenge, is that whether identified or not, when somebody whistleblows or raises financial concerns, they're also often very confident as to what the result should be. So even in situations, and we'll talk about this in a minute, where there may actually have been a action or result or doing the right thing, then you have the person saying, wait, 
I'm telling you it's Joe. And everyone else said, you know, it comes out, the evidence says it's Lisa. So Lisa leaves. Joe is still there. Joe may or may not have actually raised similar concerns. And you have a whistleblower who then doesn't feel that it was a fair result. I think that's the not the exception to the norm. But I think given how hard it is to be a reporter or a whistleblower, I think that's always a challenge too. How do you make someone comfortable if it's not the result they agree with, even if there is action? Yeah, so so I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but it's this is really the prong of procedural justice when you talk about organizational justice. And, and I think we are fundamentally very bad at communicating, not only with the person who has raised the concern, uh, but also those involved in the investigation. We uh, hide behind confidentiality as a way not to tell people what happened. Uh, and I think there are ways that you can absolutely do that. Uh, and I think we, we really fall short uh, and, and have a mindset that once the report is issued and the discipline has been metered out, we're done. And the answer is you're not. You're really not. You've had some kind of department who's gone through who knows how long of an investigation. Everybody knows it's happening. And then nobody tells anybody, well, what happened? And what were the results? Or if we do it, it's so cryptic that nobody really understands. And so we do, we get this dichotomy of, well, we think the wrong person got fired or maybe they even got promoted. And we see this in our employee surveys or our ethical culture surveys, right? It's not only retaliation, but nothing will get done. Yeah. And I just think we have to do a much better job at bringing some real transparency to what happened and what were the results. And I think you can do that and balance uh, confidentiality. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a tough balance, but I, I agree. We, we can do better. Um, and I think it's also a challenge when you become in, you know, involved in investigations because you become, even when you're trying hard to be not biased or everything else, I mean, investigations are not easy things to be involved with. You, you, know, you can be emotional. You are aware of consequences for other people. And even with the most empathy, it's saying it's an art, not a science. Yeah. And, and you spoke a little bit about the um, person, the reporter's confirmation bias, right? They have one set of ideas or mm -hmm. what they think are facts in their mind. And they believe, you know, there's, there is a result. Uh, investigators do this too. Uh, and I have certainly seen and, and, and with my, worked with my teams to make sure that we're not trying to get to the result either the executive or the boards might be pressuring us to get to, mm -hmm. uh, but also sometimes it just isn't there. Um, you know, the behavior isn't a violation of the code of conduct. It might not be nice. It might not be the best way to treat one another, but you don't have a policy violation. You don't have the code. And uh, we get so wrapped up into doing the investigation and trying to find something. Sometimes we confirm our own biases or our own theories rather than looking at the facts as they are. And so that's, I think, for every investigator, really important thing to guard against. Make sure you're not aligning the facts to be the way you want to see them, just as the reporters do sometimes. Yep. Absolutely. Well, this is, and for all of you listening, this is how conversations often go, because one of the things we really wanted to focus on today is organizational justice. So you talked a little bit about procedural, the procedural prong, but let's start with like the big picture. How do you define organizational justice, both to you or and just traditionally? 
Yeah. So, so, you know, organizational justice has been a topic of study for um, management uh, professionals for, for many years, right? Uh, and, and it, sometimes it's described with four different prongs and sometimes three. Um, and, and it, it really boils down to fairness. Uh, do you feel that you are being treated fairly? And when you unpack that, right, there, there are different pieces. One is the distributive, uh, justice. And that really, um, falls into the D, E, and I realm, particularly pay equity, right? Uh, if Lisa and I are doing the same job, we ought to pay, behave the same amount or be given the same hours or the same working conditions or the same resources, right? So, so is the organization setting me up to succeed or to fail? And when I compare myself to others, and we all do it, <laughs> mm-hmm. do, do I feel that the comparison is fair? And this gets trickier and trickier in a hybrid world, right? Because I may want to leave at four o'clock for whatever reason, but my coworker gets to leave at four o'clock because she's got to pick up or he's got to pick up kids from school and that's okay. But just because I just want to leave at four, maybe it's not okay. Right. And so it, it becomes a tricky, tricky thing to deal with, with what's fair because things that are sometimes uniform and consistent as we know are not fair because my circumstances are different. Uh, and uh, I may need something that Lisa doesn't need and vice versa. So that's the distributive piece. Then there's also the interactional piece, which is, you know, do you treat me with respect? Are you honest with me? Do I trust you? Uh, and I think we focus a lot on that, on having managers be a channel for reporting and understanding how to handle concerns and resolve issues for employees, whether they're ethics and compliance concerns or others, right? You know, you first go to your manager, usually, uh, and and how do they do that? But then the piece that I am um, really kind of just fascinated with um, is the procedural piece, because it is really core to all of these speak up campaigns and to any kind of ability to truly prevent and detect misconduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you look at procedural justice, that really is... Have you told me what the process is? I mean, let's just think about this for a minute. If I really believe that my boss is having an affair with a subordinate and cheating on his expense reports, and you tell me, speak up, it's the right thing to do, but I have no idea what's going to happen, how long it's going to take, who's going to handle the investigation. I just don't know. But yet you're telling me I should just call. Right. So I think we're getting better at that, but I think we don't do a great job on what's the real process. Mm -hmm. And then that transparency piece, Lisa, that you and I have kind of already talked a little bit about. But, you know, I'm sitting there. I've taken a big risk. I've reported my boss. Uh, I think I'm right. Right. I mean, maybe I have an outcome in my mind of what should happen. He should be fired. Uh, and, And maybe, you know, his lover, too. Um, but, um, we don't communicate, right? We, we wait for the reporter to call back and say, what's the status? And then we say something cryptic, like we're still working on it. And more importantly, we just don't close out. Uh, and, and, and here it's more than just the reporter, right? You've invested, you've interviewed, I don't know how many people. Uh, I don't think that it really is a violation of confidentiality to say to somebody, 
I want to thank you for the time you gave us. Your information was very helpful. We have concluded the case. We have found it to be substantiated and appropriate discipline action has been taken. You know, I, I think that doesn't violate anybody's confidentiality, but um, you know, that's really the, the other piece on this. And, and, and then another real piece on this is that objectivity, right? You really have to be an independent and fair investigative source. And that can be tricky because you may have the board or the executives who want a particular outcome, don't want to be embarrassed uh, by having somebody, you know, violate the rules or things getting going public or other things like that. But I, I think it is really critical that the ethics and compliance team uh, safeguards its objectivity and access in, in as objectively as it possibly can. And then timeliness, because that's tied into fairness, right? It's hard sometimes for people to understand why it's going to take you 60 days to go through all those expense reports. Uh, and you need to tell them, look, we've gone back two years or whatever's appropriate. And it is going to take time. Um, it's important not to let people fill in the blanks mm -hmm. when they don't know, because they will always assume the worst. And their, their assumption is, and I, again, we see this in the employee surveys and in our ethical surveys, culture surveys, they assume you're doing nothing because you haven't told them nothing. Yeah. And I have to say, that's something I, I, there's things as we talk, I think well, as someone who does investigations, what can I do better? What, you know, what things do we learn? But I try very, very hard, even though it may or may not be listened to in any discussion with someone, this is going to take longer than you think it will. And here are some of the reasons why. These are the types of documents we're going to be looking at. This is, the, we are going to talk to a lot of people. And I also sometimes say this also for people who may be uncomfortable speaking. It also is saying, all of this that we do make sure that nothing can be attri attributed to others right away, but understand, and I'll, I'll reach out. I mean, you know, it, it, you can't, there's no general rule all the time, but I really try hard to, you know, think, have some empathy and then also manage the, it takes time because it always takes longer than we think and way longer than anybody else thinks it should take. Um, and there are real reasons often, but still that can't fix it. But with that, Alan, let me ask you, how does organizational uh, justice um, either complement or is, is the same or different from an ethics or compliance culture? Um, I think it's part and parcel. I don't think you have an ethics and compliance culture if you don't have organizational justice. Um, and that's because you really aren't engaging your employees in the values and the mission of the organization, and which means they're not executing on the strategy. Uh, ultimately, organizational justice really gets employees engaged uh, in, in, in being part of the company. And that's what an ethical culture is, right? And your values are that you'll speak up, you won't, you know, violate the code, et cetera, et cetera. So I, it, it, they aren't separate things. Um, they go hand in glove. And you know, how do you make, you know, we've talked about all the ways that we've tried, we're not doing so great and making it seem as a priority. A couple questions for about employees. How do you make sure that your employees buy in and, and, and believe that organizational justice is a priority? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that is um, just uh, how ethics and compliance works is you can't do it alone. 
HR has a tremendous uh, impact on employees and they have to be part of this uh, because that distributive justice piece is also part of the procedural justice piece, right? I mean, do people pay, feel they're getting paid fairly, that their performance reviews are, are fair, that the organization will listen to them about their concerns, whether they're ethics concerns or not, uh, all of those things. So it, it is one of those things that no one area can do all by themselves. It's, a, it's really a, a, a piece of culture. Uh, and, and what does the organization stand for and believe in? Uh, and uh, while ethics and compliance can be kind of the spearhead and, and the leaders in that, uh, you, you have to train your managers uh, and you've really got to talk to people about this is the way we do things in this company. We, we are as transparent as we can be. We, you know, we take care of concerns. We value them. I mean, all those things. And if it isn't a consistent message, You've got a problem. Yeah. And that, as you said that, you know, consistency, how do you, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately about discipline and consistent discipline. I think there are some real benefits to it. But I also think if you have a more junior person who makes a mistake, who may commit the same, you know, the same foul or, you know, inappropriate action or behavior, you know, treating them, I feel like if you're a more senior person, you might in some ways have more responsibility and it should be taken more seriously. Sometimes we see the opposite because of an organization. So how do, should we be making discipline consistent? I mean, if we're doing it wrong now, can we do it better? What do you think? Yeah. So so I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what uniform and consistent means. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and whenever I've interviewed for a job, I always ask the question of what do people get fired for? I think every organization and its its executives and certainly its managers should be able to say pretty quickly and consistently, we don't tolerate X, right? Workplace violence. That's, I think, an easy one, right? Uh, Any kind of um, inaccuracy or falsehood on a record, right? Whether it's your expense report or it's financial reporting, or cheating on an invoice or whatever, right? But but they boil down pretty quickly. Uh, and people ought to know, right? If you do this, you're going to get fired. Uh, then I think that there um, is a misconception about, well, what does fairness mean? Uh, and, you know, what's fair for Ellen in her circumstances may not be the same thing that's fair for Lisa. So when you look at what's uniform and consistent, it isn't that if you do X, this is your consequence. It is what is the thought process and the decision-making process to determine what the discipline is. Let's say I'm two years out of college and I didn't really understand because I don't have a lot of experience. Should I be given a second chance? That might actually really be fair. But let's say you've been in the company for 30 years and this is um, the third time we've talked to you about inaccurate expenses. Are you entitled to a fourth chance? Not sure. But I think we get very focused on it, there needs to be a formula. You do this kind of offense. This is what happens. And people are different and circumstances are different. I think it's about how you determine what's the appropriate discipline so that your process is uniform and consistent. Yeah. 
And with that, talking about organizational justice, very rarely do I get the opportunity to do a rip from the headlines of the past <laughs> week. But I, I actually thought um, this will be airing about 10 days after the, as they call it, the slap heard around the world at the Academy Awards. Um, I really felt when I thought about that, and I have, I thought a lot about the organizational justice components for it. Um, who did what and why? There's there's a lot to be said, and we've talked about that. But one of the things is they, I, I saw somewhere that they said that, you know, Will Smith's behavior violated the Oscars code of standards. So I thought thinking about organizational justice and being me, I went and looked for it. It's only available to members. Um, they're, you know, they, they apparently during Me Too, um, updated their code to restrict uninvited physical contact. And, you know, also people should require professional co conduct, but you can't read it. So what I wanted to talk a little bit to you about was the, that was a, a huge, it was a moment and a moment that could have been handled from an organizational standpoint extremely differently. And I would think if Lisa Fine ever got into the room and decided to go try to start running towards any famous person, there'd be like four, you know, security people dragging me away without saying what's right or wrong. From an organizational justice standpoint, I don't think that the last week talking about this has inspired a lot of confidence in that, in, in the motion picture, the art and sciences and all of that. Yeah, so so a couple, couple of real thoughts here on that. One is we have a tendency to think that the actions of the uh, person who's engaged in the misconduct, and let's call him a victim, um, is insular, right? It only affects them. And the truth is it doesn't. And anybody who has done investigations and worked in ethics and compliance for even just a short period of time you absolutely know that the misconduct inf impacts everybody. People know and feel that people are getting away with breaking the rules that shouldn't uh, and that some people get treated better than others, right? And, and that's that fairness piece, right? Superstar, we hear it time and time again, superstars get the pass. So uh, when you think about that from an organizational justice piece, it's, it's about that fairness piece, which is the rules apply to some of us, but not to all of us based on power and status. Uh, and when you, when you kind of look at this instance, I think there is a lot of other corporate scandals that you could layer on top of it and see that they acted exactly the same way. The first thing is to diminish the event. Right. Let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's move on. The show must go on, which I would assume is a value of the, they're in the show business industry. <laughs> yeah, they're in the show. You know, I mean, not, you know, right. Not knowing what their code says, but uh, the show must go on. And so that's that's what they did. But the, the other piece is then the person who very visibly <laughs> engaged uh, in that activity gets an award. Yeah. That right. And, and, and we hear this time and time again. And it gets to what you talked to in the very beginning where, you know, somebody believes, you know, it really was Lisa who uh, is the wrongdoer, but it was actually Alan and Lisa gets the promotion, right? I mean, you know, so Will, Will Smith gets the award. Uh, and, and did you have the psychology and the, the human reaction of let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's move on, cover it up, show must go on, operating over their values, yeah. And their code, uh, because they had a very short period of time to make any decisions, uh, 
or do they actually just not believe that they really have any obligation to address wrongdoing? You know, I mean, some codes of conducts are mere pieces of paper. So what is it? I, I, we don't know. But or did did they decide to wait to see what the reaction was from the public? Um, because what I also found fascinating, I mean, two things I thought were really interesting about it um, as well were that, you know, he did go up there and give the speech and people gave standing ovations to somebody. Um, others were pretty, particularly comedians were, you know, thinking, how does this going to echo in, um, you know, when we go and perform, do people now think it's okay if they don't like what we say, you know, in a club somewhere to come up and slap us, whether, whether, what Will, what Chris Rock said was right or wrong. I mean, there's a there's a consequence. And the other thing is, you know, they went, he went out the rest of the night. People looked at the Oscar, you know, still treated it. So you also you really it reinforces the idea of some people can get away with with certain things, and then others um, may not. And also, I think in an industry that's you know being hit by lots of new things, people are home more. COVID, people not going out to see movies. I mean, doesn't exactly make you real excited about the future products. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about human, you know, human behavior and how it, we should be impacting and directing behavior and ethics and compliance, right? We want people to do the right thing in, in a very <laughs> high level <laughs> of overly generic description of it. But I, as I'm listening to you, the thing that pops in my mind is the old professor Ash uh, experiments on conformity mm -hmm. and how, um, as animals, we actually heard, right? So somebody stands up and gives them a, uh, you know, standing ovation. We follow, right? And then it's that old exercise of the person who stands the wrong way in the elevator and makes everybody uncomfortable, right? Which takes a tremendous amount of courage, right? And, and, and we do this in our organizations in regard to misconduct all the time, right? We diminish it. We dismask. The reporter, we discredit them. I don't know how many times you've had conversations about, but they're a per performer um, or whatever it is, right? Or they complain all the time. They're always complaining. Um, and, and our desire as humans to conform as to what we think is expected is, is a huge, a huge driver for all of us. And I, the ethics and compliance program should always be <laughs> standing the wrong way in the elevator. And at the academy, nobody stood up yeah, in that I was, way. I was thinking about, I was thinking, we need to stand the wrong way in the elevator. And then, of course, given the fact that we used the, the title of the book, I was like, stand in the wrong way in the elevator. And when you're done, send it back down so somebody else can stand the wrong way in the elevator with you. Yeah, and it's hard. It's, I mean, I, I don't want in any way diminish that it's really hard, really hard to not follow the crowd. It's not easy. No, and I think that's one of the challenges we have in the ethics and compliance profession. We are sometimes standing alone um, and trying to do the right thing. And it's never perfect. And we all have our biases and we all have our long days. But I do think it's interesting. And I mean, I have to say from a, that was the reason I found this thing that happened at the Academy Awards particularly fascinating, because I feel like in a very short period of time, we saw so many aspects of human behavior and lack of organizational justice that will, you know, uh, we can reflect on for a while um, in, an in an unfortunate way. And, you know, the collateral damage are other people that this should have been the night of their lives. Um, you know, the people. Well, and, 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 I, and that's, that gets back to the point I was talking about is there, there, 
when there is an, a toxic event or a toxic toxic individual, it affects it affects everybody. Uh, it, it affects their performance. It affects their sense of fairness. It affects their engagement in the organization. And and we have to be uh, much more holistic in how we think about this. Um, and uh, we tolerate the text, the toxic individual, the superstar, whatever, probably for way too long uh, because somebody doesn't want to take the hit for it, hiring them in the first place. That's embarrassing. Uh, doesn't want to explain why they have to leave. Doesn't want to have to deal with it. Um, but um, it really does take a, a real toll on everybody else who has to deal with um, the individuals. And what it really does is says, say to everybody, those values that poster on the wall, that talks about integrity and transparency and all that, it's just ink on paper. It, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. It's, it may be pretty, uh, but it doesn't, you're not living it. And, you know, those kind of messages people hear loud and clear. Yeah, especially you, know, you turn on your computer every day, they give you a mandatory value screensaver. And then five minutes later, you brought the values into the house, but because that's where you may be still working and yeah. it all doesn't happen. Well, yeah. this is, as usual, one of my most fun and fascinating discussions. And Alan, thank you so much for, for taking the time um, to speak with me and for everything you do for our community. And on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast Network, thank you so much. Oh, it's, it's been my honor and pleasure, Lisa. Well, everybody get ready for next year's conversation. <laughs> Have a great day. Al. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.